Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you have been listening to the show finding some value in it, how about you head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Uh, Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. Speaking of five-star reviews, this one goes out to PCV Rach, who says, extremely informative, exciting, and helpful. Five stars. I was recently invited to serve in the Peace Corps, Ukraine 2020, and listening to this podcast helped me prepare for my interview and is keeping me motivated and focused as I wade through all the doctor's appointments, paperwork, and government hoops and wait to leave next August. Thank you so much for this wonderful resource. Well, Rach, thank you for leaving the review and best of luck as you wade through all that paperwork. I was there, as were many others, but it will be well worth it when you're on the other side. For this week's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Randy Hobler, who has been working on a book for the past two plus years, two and a half years, compiling stories from Peace Corps volunteers who served in Libya. Yes, Peace Corps was in Libya, but they were evacuated in 1969. That's when he left. He tells his story and the stories of many others on this week's episode. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Randy Hopler, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Randy, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Doing well and excited to talk to you about your time in Libya, uh, a country that, to be honest, I didn't realize that we had ever served uh, at, as, as Peace Corps volunteers. I had to look it up. Uh, so we haven't been serving there uh, for many, many years, pulled out of the country in 1969. But Libya has been in the news uh a lot over the past few years, uh, given the, the turmoil that is happening there. So very interested to hear about your experience there as a volunteer, and then also getting into your your book, your forthcoming book, uh, looking at the experience of uh, Libyan Return Peace Corps volunteers and the experiences that they had. Yeah, one thing I wanted to frame the book as, and I did this in the book, is that for most of our the history of the United States and Libya, uh, it has been one of warfare. It goes way back to 1801 in the Barbary Wars, and you know that song, for the Marine Hymn from the shores of Tripoli, <clears throat> and uh, and from President. President Thomas Jefferson, uh, and it was only in a brief period of time after World War II until the end of 1969 that we actually had peace between the United States and Libya, because before and after that, it's been just a, a case of warfare and conflict, one, one after the other. And uh, using a bit of uh, comedy I have in my book that in this once brief shining spot was a, an area called Camelot. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm excited to hear all of those stories that, that, that you've collected and your own personal experiences. But let's start off by letting everybody know uh, a little bit about yourself and what exactly you were doing as a Peace Corps volunteer in Libya in 1968. Yeah, well, we did training in uh, Clearfield, Utah, and we had 31 Libyan host nationals with us. Uh, so they taught us Arabic and uh, we taught them English. And then we flew over to Libya and we were teaching, there were about a 150, maybe 160 of us, uh, married women uh, with their couples, excuse me, with their husbands and uh, ourselves, a male uh, student, male uh, volunteers. And uh, we were pretty much 90% of us uh, teaching English in the fifth grade. Okay. And when you served at Peace Corps, this was during the, the first decade of Peace Corps. What was your main driver for wanting to join the Peace Corps to begin with? For all of us, although there was the wrinkle of the Vietnam War, which is a kind of a, a prod and a kind of a motivation, but uh, for all of us, uh, it was the enormous inspiration we had uh, with President Kennedy and the whole idea of the Peace Corps and how um, inspired we were by him and by the whole idea of having uh, something where it's not just people going off to war all the time, it's people doing something positive. Okay, and that seems to be a, a commonality for any of the volunteers that I talked to that served in the 60s and the 70s, having that direct connection to being inspired by Kennedy, hearing those speeches and, and seeing the, 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 the leadership that he exuded and the opportunity to go out and try to make the world a better place. Absolutely. And then the other wrinkle is... Um, it is is all for for the most part. There are some exceptions, for, but for the most part, uh, and I know this uh, from facts because I've talked to 101 people, <laughs> interviewed 101 people in my book. Um, they were also inspired by culture and travel. So you combine those things together, and it makes for an interesting group of people. Even get before you went to to Libya. Mm -hmm. And prior to going to Libya to teach English. What, what were what were you doing? Were you fresh out of fresh out of college? Fresh yeah, out of fresh college. out of Princeton University. Yep, class of nineteen sixty eight. Okay, and you were uh, you got your assignment to go to Libya. What did you think? Did you really know what you were getting yourself into? Was Libya maybe one of the countries you were hoping to be placed? Uh. Because I had minored in Spanish in college, I wanted to go to a South American company country. And uh, when I, you know, asked the Peace Corps about that, they said, "We're, so we're sorry, <clears throat> South America is closed, so we're sending you to Libya." And I really didn't know where it was. I, I knew nothing about it. So uh, very many of us were just uh, arbitrarily sent to this place called Libya, and we had no idea what we're getting into. Uh, but what's interesting in the larger arc of things is uh, all of us were thrust into this situation in Libya. And then at the tail end of that, going into our careers over the next 50 years, our whole lives changed uh, in, in terms of just that initial change of going to Libya and then going into other kinds of international activities. Mm -hmm. And as a English teacher in, in Libya, were you teaching at a high school level, a collegiate level? And what was your day-to-day -day life like as a teacher? Well, it was uh, <clears throat> it was fifth grade, um, and 
the kids were, uh, you know, they'd never learned English before, so we were starting from scratch. Um, we did standard lesson plans uh, before, uh, you know, every day before going to uh, to school. Um, some of the kids uh, rode donkeys to school. Uh, some of them rode uh, motor not motorcycles, but bicycles. But the uh, the the uh, landscape there was very much like the moon, and they would lose their 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 tires all the time. They get flat tires in their bikes, and they keep pumping them up every day and coming in. Um, and uh, there was only one girl. Uh, in my class, as there were some girls in some of the other classes of the uh, uh, people I talked to, but just one little girl who was um, named Amina. She was sitting in the front row. Uh, one interesting factor we found is that, and this was universal across all of Libya, is that uh, Libya had this rule that if you failed a given grade, you had to redo it. And uh, so people repeated, X number of people would, you know, had to repeat their, their grades. So there was this when you're sitting and they they used to seat, seat them by age so the kids at the who were the newest would be sitting in the in the class in front of us and then they'd be getting older and older and older to get to the back in the back of my room we had a couple of kids who were 22 years old and they were still in the fifth grade <laughs> so you were you were teaching students that were uh, about your same age yeah actually yeah <laughs> and when when you were a volunteer you were sort of living with other volunteers, uh, correct me if I'm wrong? It varied. Uh, I was living by myself. Uh, many of us were living by ourselves. Some of us were living with two volunteers. Some of us were living with uh, Libyan teachers. Some of us were living with uh, Algerian and Egyptian teachers. It, it was uh, a, a great variety of, of how this was done. The married couples, of course, were just living you know, with themselves. Mm-hmm. And were you serving in a, a large city or more of a rural setting? Uh, a small a small town, uh, 500, excuse me, a small village, uh, about 100 miles south of the Mediterranean. Um, and uh, I didn't pay any attention at the time to how many people were there, but it's about 500 families I've learned since then. And uh, we had no running and no running water, no electricity. So very primitive conditions. Okay, which is kind of nice for me to hear because I I feel that all all these volunteers that I talked to that served in the early years of Peace Corps tended to have what I would consider by by my my standards to be a little bit cushier than I had it uh, that they were living in maybe the capital city with other volunteers at these sort of teachers colleges uh, but it was ni- nice to hear that uh, you and I had similar experiences of no electricity no running water and being off the beaten track. Yeah, well, I had one. The closest, te- uh, <clears throat> the closest uh, Peace Corps volunteer to me uh, lived ten miles away, and uh, he was so isolated. They had no bread, no food, no canned, you know, no vegetables, no canned food. And so uh, every Thursday, every Friday was the day off in Muslim countries like Libya. So every Friday, he would walk ten miles with a backpack on his back to come visit with me and to buy supplies in my local in my local village. Wow. Well, let's get into some of the stories, both uh, of your stories and maybe some of the stories that you collected. But do you have any just favorite memories or those stories that you love retelling that are iconic of your time as being a Peace Corps volunteer or just being in Libya? 
Yeah, I have a few my own favorite stories, and I can share some other stories of things that happened with uh, some of my fellow volunteers that I interviewed. Uh, one of my favorite stories is I was living in this village that was a Berber village. Uh, the Berbers were there for thousands of years before the Arabs came in the 1600s, and uh, they were forced up into the mountains, and I was up in the Nafusa Mountains. And um, so these folks in my village were bi bilingual. They spoke equally well both Arabic and Berber. And being interested in linguistics, uh, one of my little pet uh, phrases to learn was how to count to 10 in different languages. And so one morning after, um, after, you know, during recess, I said to them, you know, how do you say, you know, how do you count to 10 in Berber? And they said, oh, yeah, we can tell you that. So I took out a pad of paper and a pencil and I said, how do you say one? And they said, Egen. Then I said, how do you say two? And they said, sin. So I wrote that down. Then I said, how do you say three? And there was this pregnant pause. I said, well, how do you say three? And they said, well, we don't have a word for that. Okay. How do you say four? <laughs> Well, we don't have a word for that either. Well, what about five? No, six, no, nine, 10, 32, 110, 5,620. No, we don't have words for those things. So I said to them, well, how do you say something that's more than two? And they said, a lot. <laughs> so I'm picturing, and I've told this story many times, you know, Muhammad in third grade multiplication class. And the teacher says, Muhammad, what's nine times nine? And he says, a lot. <laughs> And then to top it off, one of the people I interviewed said, well, I can top that story. And I said, what? Well, that same teacher could ask Muhammad, what's a lot times a lot? And uh, <laughs> I said, I don't know. What would that be? And he said, a lot more. Uh, yeah, it's it's sometimes funny to see how languages evolved and the things that some languages have or do not have, especially with respect to, to numbers or even time. Uh, usually the reference to time just is kind of a representation of where the sun is in the sky and it's give or take two to three hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. In fact, uh, when it comes to counting, uh, the ironic thing is in our village, you could count to 28 on your fingers uh, because they would count the little uh, segments of your skin, you know, one, two, your thumb has got two segments and three segments on all your other fingers. So they could count to 28 in that way. And I know that uh, the way they indicate in many other different countries, uh, the way people count with their fingers varies according to what the culture is. Uh, I did not know that. And during, during your time there, you, you were, living amongst, it seems like, the two different uh, ethnic groups or racial groups, both the, the Berbers and uh, Arabic cultures. What were the foods like that you were eating on a day-to-day -day living in this community? Yeah, uh, this varied uh, according to, I thought it was the same. I was eating the same traditional foods uh, that everyone was eating all over Libya, but it varied enormously. But in my village, there were basically three foods. There was couscous, which is the most delicious uh, food, in my opinion, in the world, uh, Libyan country couscous. Um, and of course, it's highly spiced, a lot of uh, harissa and uh, hot pepper in it. Um, the other thing they would do is uh, they would eat uh, spaghetti, again, with that same sauce in it. And they would eat the spaghetti with their hands. They had a way of twirling their hands together and getting it into their mouth in a very adept way. 
And the third thing that uh, they regularly eat was a thing called bazine, which was uh, a form of boiled barley, which they would make in the shape of a kind of a volcano. And at the uh, top of the volcano, they pour in, again, some of this uh, small, this very hot sauce. And the idea was you'd grab a piece of this from the volcano with your fingers, uh, dip it into the sauce, and then eat it. And the only catch was you had to eat it whole. And I said to them, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and they said, no, Mr. Randy, you must eat it whole. <laughs> and I said, no, I like the taste of it the way it is. And so I would, I would just chew on it. Mm -hmm. We had one person uh, who was living in the Sahara Desert. Uh, and in my, my book, I mentioned this. Uh, the only thing he ate for a, a whole year uh, while he was there was uh, pasta with hot sauce. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sometimes volunteers have uh, very different cuisine, even within one country. I have a, a good friend of mine who was serving in the north of Burkina Faso, and he didn't have the foods that I had access to. And he told me one time that he'd been just eating onions, sauteed onions for the past week. And that's about <laughs> it. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a whole a whole chapter in my book called Vittles, and it talks about all the different kinds of things that people ate. Uh, we had uh, my my friend and I would uh, cook camel cheeseburgers all the time, and uh, <laughs> the only time you could uh, eat camel was the only time they would kill a camel was when it was old, and when it was old, it was very rangy, and so we had to to grind up the the meat and eat it. Uh, a number of times, uh, people, all of us, uh, experienced going on a quote unquote picnic, uh, where they would take a, a young goat or a young sheep and uh, you know cut its neck and, uh, and and you know skin it and it eat it and. Uh, and, and they considered, among other things, that the eyeballs of these sheep and, and of camels were considered a delicacy. And it was uh, uh, some of us, some people winced and went ahead and ate them and others sort of uh, said no in, in a very as a polite a way as they could. And during, during your service, there were probably hard times. I, I assume also being evacuated was difficult. But what were some of your least favorite memories or challenges that you faced as a volunteer? Well, um, I guess the most difficult thing was I was they gave us motorcycles and that was very unusual in the day. And um, they were Italian motorcycles called Moto Guzzi's, and they we were, they were supposed to train us in training. And they never did, except on the last day. <laughs> uh, so we had to we were kind of on our own. And uh, so most of us had two schools that were, you know, too far away from one another to walk. And so I would ride my uh, my my motorcycle to these to two schools, and there was an enormous difference between the. Um, the uh, morale in the two schools. Uh, in one school, the kids were wonderful and very helpful and sweet. Another, another school, they were just very difficult and very disorderly, and they really hadn't trained us in the in the Peace Corps as to how to deal with with uh, you know difficult students. So that that was the hardest thing, I think. Um, they also had a way of uh, uh, the way of disciplining the children, where the uh, teachers and or the the principal of the school would slap them really hard with a stick on their palms. And this was something that most of us uh, refused to do, but some occasionally had to do. Um, so that was something that was something we were in, in the middle of doing that we had to do. So I, th I think those things were difficult. Uh, the other thing that was difficult for the female uh, uh, volunteers was the constant uh, badgering and, uh, you know, uh, 
sexual aggression and so forth by the male uh, the male Libyans uh, in 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 the cities where they were living. So uh, they have a number of stories in the book about the difficulties they had with that. They they felt very oppressed and very very uh, you know persecuted by this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's nice though is they there, there's some wonderful uh, redemptive stories around this where. Um, there was one woman who was walking along uh, on her way to her school, and uh, there were these teenage Libyan boys who started throwing rocks at her, and she turned around to them, and in Arabic, she started shouting at them in fluent Arabic and saying, shame upon you, shame upon your mothers, shame upon your grandmothers, you should not be doing this, and they were so shocked by this, they thought she was a witch, and they ran away. <laughs> Uh, well, yes, that, that is a funny and redemptive story. Uh, now, when you were there, you were there only for a year because you all were evacuated. What yep. what what caused that evacuation? Uh, there was a, a revolution, and there's a funny story behind it. <clears throat> On the 1st of September, 1969, uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, staged a coup against the king, uh, of Libya, and that, uh, and of course, they immediately said that we uh, we Peace Corps volunteers were CIA spies, and we had to leave the country. It took them two months to get us out of there because they're backward, you know, countries, third world countries. So they finally got us out of there. But uh, the funny thing was, it was a bloodless revolution, and the reason for this was uh, the king had plotted to have his own person. Uh, assigned to take over because the king was over 80 years old and he's going to die pretty soon. So he pretended he was going off to Turkey, which he did, uh, with a retinue of 100 people, including concubines and so forth. <clears throat> and uh, while he was uh, gone, uh, tr- some, a number of people, the Black Prince and some other people and Gaddafi all uh, were plotting to take over. And Gaddafi was smart enough to say, you know, the, the, the king has plotted to take over on September 2nd. So we'll, t- we'll preempt him and we'll take over on September 1st. So what happened was September 1st rolls around and all the people who are planning on taking over the TV station and taking over the airport and taking over the post office and all those things you do when you're doing a coup d'etat said, oh, I guess it's the king's people. They said, oh, I guess they moved the, I guess they moved the revolution up a day. And they were working side by side with Gaddafi's people, not realizing they were in two opposing sides. Eventually, they were all clapped in prison, but there were no, there was no shootings or anything because it was a bloodless revolution. Uh, <laughs> that is an amazing piece of history. Yeah, I mean, and we were there in the middle of that. So, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the. Go ahead. Yes. No, you go ahead. Well, I mean, if you're interested in a couple of war stories about the revolution, um, uh, I had a girlfriend, a potential girlfriend. We were doing talking. She was in Benghazi. I was in Libya, and we were sending letters all the time. We very rarely could we get together, but I wanted to go to Benghazi. This was after the revolution. And um, on the way back from trying to visit to her, and she wasn't even there, <laughs> so I traveled a thousand miles for nothing. Uh, this was after the revolution. And in the airports, they had all these guys with some machine guns running around and everything was very nervous and everybody was trigger happy. And um, uh, they, uh, they had frisked us going at the Benghazi airport 
And then when we landed in the Tripoli airport, they were starting to frisk us again. And I'm saying, why? On the one hand, I'm saying, why should I, you know, I should complain. Why are you frisking us? This makes no sense. We've already frisked us before we went to the airport. They don't know. I'm not going to do anything. So they start frisking me and they took out my passport and they threw it over their shoulder. And I said, fine, I'm going to stay calm. And then they found my WHO card, my World Health Organization card with the immunization records on it. I they threw that over. I threw that. They threw that over shoulder. I said, "Fine." Uh, they had find my wallet. They threw that over my shoulder. My keys. They threw it over their shoulder. I said, "Fine, fine, fine." Then in my back right hand con- pocket, <clears throat> I had toilet paper because there is no toilet paper in Arab countries. And they took the toilet paper, threw it over their, uh, threw it over their shoulder, and I pushed them away and shouted, "No!" and dived <laughs> at this toilet paper because I had to have that toilet paper. They were training their submachine guns at me. They could have killed me. I didn't care. I had to have my toilet paper. <laughs> uh, you know, there are some things that are just essential in life, <laughs> right? So, so I take it that you never got. Uh, used to or never tried to go the the traditional route with the the kettle and the water and and all of that no they that we 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 finally we had we figured out that that we could have a toilet paper in fact there was a a guy during training who was uh, Iranian and uh, he he de- he was deselected and didn't uh, end up going to Libya but he was good friends with a friend of ours named George who lived in the eastern part of Libya <clears throat> and uh one day about 6 months into his uh stint um, he was he was called to the customs area and there was this enormous package like 10 feet high by five feet wide. And he said, what the hell is this thing? And he took it home and opened it up. And his friend had sent them all the hundreds and hundreds of, of rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> That's a good friend. Yeah. Uh, there's another story about after the revolution. Uh, <clears throat> my friend and I, uh, we... After the before the revolution, we were traveling and uh, we went around the Mediterranean, and it only cost like a dollar forty a night for room, and cost thirty dollars to fly from say Tripoli to, to Greece and so forth. So we went to uh, we went to uh, Turkey, we went to Istanbul, we went to Beirut, we went to Syria, we went to Egypt. While we were in Beirut, we found out that the revolution had happened, <clears throat> and while we were in in Egypt, luckily, uh, we were staying with friends of my grandfather so we could stay for free. But we were stuck in Egypt for two weeks and we were trying to figure out how to get into uh, Libya, which is closed at the time. And so finally, we came up with a scheme. And the scheme was we would take a, a flight from Egypt to Tunis that stopped in Tripoli. So we figured we'd get off at Tripoli and that would be our way of sneaking into the country. So we get on to the get on uh, to the airport and it's uh, noon and we get off the plane and the stewardess says, well, you know, we're leaving in half an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see you soon. So we go through customs and the first thing they do is they have ask for our WHO cards. And of course, again, they all have these submachine guns. And I knew that my friend was someone who fainted when they got, when he got, uh, you know, vaccination or a shot and uh, he didn't have his who card. And we said, what are we going to do? How can we get in the country? And they said, well, you know, we'll just give you a vaccination now. So he turned to me and said, Randy, catch me. So he faints. And while I'm catching him, they're turning the submachine guns on him. They think it was a counter-revolution or something going on. And we almost died. So then we go, then we go into the custom, the uh, baggage area and we uh, take out our, our baggage tags and say, we'd like to get our baggage tags. And they said, well, these baggage tags are going to Tunis. Your bags are going to Tunis. 
We said, yeah, but we're, we're staying here. And he said, no, 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 these, these bags are going to Tunis. You, there's no way that you can go from here. And we said, yeah, but we live here. We're Peace Corps volunteers. And we named our little villages and we named their teachers' names and all this. No, no, no. And then finally, in some desperate uh, piece of uh, inspiration, I said to him, well, you don't understand. These baggage tags were filled up by an Egyptian. And he said, well, why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> and he got our bags. <laughs> implying that they were filled out incorrectly no just just because uh, and I, I set this up in the and 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 your listeners should know this uh arabs are seen as this monolithic group of people but they're as as suspicious and as as competitive with one another as they are with each other so mm. uh you know the egyptians have problems with the moroccans the moroccans have problems with the palace which just the pride that, of course, uh, if had it had it been an Egyptian, you know, we we Libyans wouldn't have done such a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you were evacuated uh, fifty years now uh, from the yep. time you you left the Peace Corps. What have you been doing in the in the time in between now, or the time in between leaving and then starting this process of collecting stories and and writing the book you've been working on? Short, shorthand of 50 years is uh, I went to work. Uh, well, first of all, uh, because of the, the draft, I had to come back and do something. And so I joined the Air National Guard. So I did that for a year. Then I went into, oh, excuse me, I went into the teacher corps first because we had the, the opportunity when we were evacuated to either go home, do nothing, or join the teacher corps or join another, go to another country in the teacher corps. So a number of us went to Tunisia and Nigeria and other places, Iran. Uh, I decided to go back in the teacher corps, as some of us did. Uh, then after that, I was uh, a filmmaker at Encyclopedia Britannica Films. I worked at uh, a videotape production house. I uh, worked for IBM for 13 years in various capacities. Then I started doing marketing consulting, and I've been doing that for about 30 years. And then uh, I was kind of inspired to uh, to write this book uh, back in uh, about two and a half years ago, as I said. And there was a number of coincidences that kind of occurred at that time. Uh, now, I had done some writing in my lifetime, so I was not starting from scratch. I'd, I'd been a published writer for of, of many articles and so forth over the years. Uh, but uh, the first thing that happened was... Uh, the Peace Corps, of course, they always say, oh, whenever you get back from the Peace Corps, why don't you go talk to a school group or talk to a school or whatever? And they never called me. And uh, after about 48 years, uh, all of a sudden they called me. And I said, OK, <laughs> it's about time. And I said, where do you want me to go? And they said, oh, you go to this uh, university. Uh, what's the name of it? Uh, I'm, I'm blocking on the name. Anyways, this university. Uh, out in New Jersey. And uh, so I went there and I gave a speech and had a presentation that went very well. And um, then um, I went back to, uh, uh, started to think about this thing. And then at the same time, I noticed that one of my fellow uh, Peace Corps volunteers had also uh, written a book that wasn't very good in my opinion, uh, compared to what the stories that I had and and the the plans I had for the book. Uh, But that happened at the same time. And then my sister uh, was, uh, uh, saw an article by by a guy who had been in Libya as an Air Force brat at the same time at Wheelis Air Force Base in Libya, but at the same time we were there and he'd written an article about it that same time, that within a week. And with that same week, uh, 
it was also, uh, I got together with a friend of mine who had been in the Peace Corps with me and we had a long discussion. I said, he was my first interviewee and I took all these notes. And afterwards I said, well, where did you go to college? And he went to that same college that I'd just been to the, the week before. And then there was more, uh, more coincidences all on top of that, all happening at the same time. Uh, for 48, for many years, um, I had never read the, the great books. I don't know if you've heard of those, but the University of Chicago has this, this beautiful bind, bound volumes of 48 books, uh, considered all the classic books that everyone should read. And my grandfather, upon his demise, uh, had given them to me, you know, 20, 30, 40 years before. And um, I'd never read them. And I also felt bad that I'd you know, my grandfather had gone the trouble of, you know, letting me have these books. And secondly, I felt that I didn't know much about classical, uh, you know, all this classical information. So I started to read Herodotus. And I thought Herodotus was some sort of a Latin poet, but it turns out he was the first historian. He lived about 500 BC. And uh, he talked about Libya and he talked about all these other places. And at one point he says, well, Libya, uh, of course, is surrounded in, by, in, on all four sides by water. And I said to myself, wait a minute, there's something wrong with that because Libya's only got the Mediterranean, the rest of it's desert all around it. And then it turns out that in 500 BC, all of Africa was called Libya. <laughs> well, to, to top off, it top off all the coincidences. And again, uh, Tyler, all these things are happening, you know, within, within three weeks. Uh, to top it all off, I'm very interested in the origins of things. So I wondered where Africa itself had come from. And it turns out that the suffix of Africa, ICA is a, is a place name. So Attica or Balyrica, it's, a, it's a, a, a geographic name. And then the Afra comes from Yifrin. And Yifrin was a town just six miles from where I lived and where I've been many times. Wow. Yeah, a, a lot of things happening in succession that kind of... Sparked this or reignited maybe this thing that you'd been kicking around for a while of uh, writing and, and telling your story and the stories of others that all just seemed to happen all, all at once a, a good confluence of yes, events. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and one thing I did want to say that uh, uh, one uh, serendipitous uh, result of talking to 101 of, of colleagues that I hadn't spoken to for 50 years. And, and many of them, perhaps half of them, I'd never talked talk to before because I hadn't met them. They had been uh, the couples that, that had, that had, had, had uh, trained separately in Bisbee, Arizona, uh, was enormous uh, gratification of reaching out and reconnecting with these folks uh, for an hour at a time and, and, and hearing their stories. Uh, just, just, just a great, just aside from the writing, just, just getting together was just terrific for us. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely relate to that. I have done roughly 101. I've actually lost track. I've been doing it for two years, uh, an episode every single week uh, with different volunteers. And I've always enjoyed uh, just hearing other people's stories, which makes me think back to experiences that I had as a volunteer and, and keeps that alive. It as you're talking to somebody, it doesn't feel, at least for me, that doesn't feel like I was... Uh, have been gone for five years. And I wonder if the same for you, if it doesn't feel as you're listening to these stories that it's been 50 years. Yeah. It's just, it's just like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what else do we need to know uh, about your service or this book that you've been working on? 
Well, I can talk a little bit about the book. Uh, it's called, and, and I have to uh, thank my, my girlfriend, Alexa, for the title, because I had a, a, not as, as good a title before, but it's 101 Arabian Tales, How We All Persevered in Peace Corps Libya. And of course, the 101 is an echo of uh, not just the 101 interviews, but the 1001 Arabian Nights. Uh, and uh, uh, so... Uh, again, I've interviewed these 101 folks. I've been doing a lot of work uh, uh, for the pu publication. I've typed up 18,000 emails so far, former Peace Corps volunteers, doing a lot, tons and tons and tons of work to uh, to prepare for this. Um, and the the book has a kind of a, an, an, it has funny stories. And, and one guy wrote that he couldn't count the number of times he was laughing. Uh, but there are also sad stories as well. Um, and it also has an overall arc, which is also kind of a, a coincidence. But I start the book with my father, uh, who was a, a navigator in B-29s on Tinian in World War II. And his best buddy was a, also uh, flew in B-29s and had, had, had died during the war in a crash of a B-29. And so his, his best buddy had died. Uh, similarly, uh, my best buddy, the one I taught, told you about, who walk the 10 miles every week. Um, as soon as he got back after our ex, um, leaving Libya, uh, he got engaged. And then just several months later, he was killed uh, with his fiance uh, in an automobile crash. And so the end of the book uh, completes the, the notion of, of a buddy who had died. And so at the beginning of the book, I say that this first guy was the casualty of war. And at the end, I say that my friend was a casualty of peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what what an experience to to sit down and collect these stories from volunteers and reflect on your own service. Uh, is there anything that you learned or stories that surprised you uh, when when talking to volunteers? Um, well, I've done a lot of market research over the years and because uh, as a marketing person and uh, one thing you're always looking for is surprises. It's sort of counterintuitive because a lot of people, they do research and they just want to be, get, you know, get, get uh, confirmation that their, their notions about any marketing product or advertising or anything else is, is true. And, and what you really want to do is embrace the surprises. Um, so it's more like the surprises that you hear uh, that, 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 that resonate so well. Um, and, um, and, and so again, I could just, I could go on forever. The book is 117,000 words, but this just delightful things that happen that just make you sit up. Uh, there was one guy down in the Sahara desert and, um, he, he's telling me his stories and some of the stories are very ordinary, but then he comes up with this story about he's in the middle of his little, his little village and uh, all of a sudden, these Bulgarian construction crews show up, and uh, they're there to, to do some construction. And he said, what are you guys here for? We couldn't say that, but it turned out that they were building a latrine, which is kind of funny to begin with. Uh, but then it turned out that these guys didn't speak any English. This guy didn't speak any Bulgarian. They didn't know how to communicate with one another. And so the Bulgarians were trying to be very hospitable, so they invite them over for dinner. And what these Bulgarians do, like these Eastern Europeans, is they have all the schnapps, and they're always toasting for schnapps. And every time you do a toast, you have to swallow the whole, whole glass of schnapps. 
and the, but they didn't know how to communicate to one another. And then they very cleverly somehow came up with the notion of of nouns that they all knew about or proper nouns. So they all thought about World War II and stuff. So they said Eisenhower, and they all took a long drink of the schnapps and drank down. And then another one said Montgomery, and they all drank it down, and they were all clapping and cheering and drinking the schnapps. And another one said, uh, you know, Patton, who was another, uh, you know, World War II, uh, you know, general in 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 North Africa, and they they said Patton, and they all took down the took down the schnapps and then they had probably 17 schnapps by the time they were done. And the very last one was Studebaker Packard. And they all took down the, the schnapps. So just a delightful sub story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for, for giving us a taste of your service and the stories that you collected uh, what's what's the timeline for this book? I know you're you're still in the in the process of getting it all all wrapped up, figuring out your your PR campaign of, of how to get the word mm-hmm. out about everything. Yeah. Uh, when when should people expect to to maybe see this book on on Amazon or be able to to get a copy if they're interested? Yeah, I, I would I would say sometime in, in late uh, 2019. Uh, can I give my email address? Would that help? Because that's the only contact I have right now. I'm going yeah. to be uh, creating a website, but it's rhobler, R-H-O-B as in boy, L-E-R, at optonline.net. And if anyone's interested, they can uh, they can email me and then I can email them back. And uh, there will be a website. Uh, there will be, uh, you know, as you say, uh, a publishing uh, venture taken by, by Amazon in CreateSpace. And, uh, and then there will be social media. There'll be, you know, uh, I'll be sending my book, samples of my book out to reviewers, uh, sending it out to various kinds of media, social media. Uh, I've identified 157 different Peace Corps groups, as I think uh, I've noticed you have done, uh, and emailed them and asked them about, uh, you know, letting their groups know about the book. Mm-hmm. Well, once you have uh, the website and social media stuff up, be sure to let me know and I'll update the the show notes for this episode because it's kind of nice that these interviews are, are evergreen, that people return to them. So there very well may, may be someone listening to this episode uh, four or five years after I release it. So your book will be out there. And if they want to find it or find any information, they can head on over to the show notes. Well, thank you very much for, for taking some time and sharing about your service, uh, your book. Uh, are, do you have any last parting words before we close out your episode? Well, um, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a part of my book, a chapter towards the end called Ruminations, where uh, everyone weighs in and not with cliches, but some fairly interesting aspects of what they feel about uh, the Peace Corps. And uh, one thing that I've learned, and I just repeated, it sounds very short, but very meaningful, is you never understand your own country until you leave it. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. Well, 
thank you very much for for coming on the show and, and sharing with us, Randy. To to end the episode. I became uh, a, a lover of, of languages and especially the cultural aspects of languages and the, the phrases that you pick up along the way. Do you have a favorite quote or local saying that you would like to share with us? Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, I've traveled a lot through the Arab world and someone at some point uh, said this thing to me. And um, even though Arabs, you know, ought to know it. They they seem not to, and when they hear it, uh, they laugh very heartily. Um, and it's it's a way of saying thank you, but by at extending. And, and one of the things that that Libyans and Arabs do is they have a lot of extra time on their hands, and so they make everything longer, so saying hello, how are you, and then they go on and on for ten minutes about just just doing the greetings. Anyway, I'll, I'll say what it is in Arabic and then and then uh, translate it, but it rhymes in, in Arabic. It's not as rhyming as in English, but it goes, Shukran Shazilin wa Amram Tawilin wa Zoshin Shamilin wa Riskin wa And what that means is, thank you very much. May you have a long life. May you have a beautiful wife. And may you have much wealth. Uh, well, well, thank you for that. That is something that is uh, perfect. I really enjoyed the salutations that I that I exchanged as a Peace Corps volunteer, those extended hellos asking how the family was, the farm, the animals, and, and everything, and especially the benedictions at the end when you were parting one another, and just all the blessings. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing your book on Amazon. Thank you, Tyler, so much. My pleasure. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. Thank you for spending some time with me and listening to Randy's story. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe so you get a new episode every single week when I release them. And if you want to learn more about My Peace Corps Story, how about you check out my book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon in Kindle format or paperback. Uh, if you uh, do happen to read it, uh, let me know what you think, either by leaving a review on Amazon or shooting me a message on Instagram. Thank you so very much. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?